we're already discussing them here, so we might as well start grading this here. <clears throat> is God in hell, first of all? Yes. Okay. I said no. Yes. Okay, so we got a why and a why not. So why? Well, created every Yeah, he's he's omnipresent, so he's he is everywhere. He's just not subject to it. <clears throat> okay. And, and so he's there, he's not suffering. Right. He's, <laughs> you weren't here, so you, yeah. I put God cannot dwell in the presence of evil. And, and so well, I'm like, yeah. He, of course, he does in the world. He does, yeah. Is there a text that says, yeah. God cannot dwell in the presence of evil? I made it up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that, that, that first day, actually, that, I can see the Bible saying that, yeah. right? But how would we interpret that? You know? Right. He he he, he cannot. In, in a, in terms of a, of approving of it, certainly, but he's so he is everywhere. He's not subject to its torments. Right. But are people that currently in hell are they're not in purgatory? Right. Well, but ultimately, everyone's they'll be cast into hell, right? Okay. Well, yeah. So I. That word hell is, is is a hard hard word to work okay. with because there is the the temporary place of the dead, which is called Sheol Hades. It's usually it's often translated hell in our translations, but then there's the lake of fire, which is the permanent place. So so it's hard to know exactly what. what in some ways, I, I avoid using the word hell just because of the confusion, but. In some senses, it doesn't really matter to the question. Okay. God's everywhere. God's in the lake of fire. God's in in the temporary place of the dead. But he's not suffering there, and he doesn't manifest himself. I mean, he's he's not he's not there in any in any in any sense blessing the people that are there. So if hell is a separation from God, see, I'm not sure I would define it quite that way. I mean, it is it is a kind of separation. It's not a sep- an absolute separation from God, but it, in fact, one of the worst aspects of the Lake of Fire is that God is there, but you can never get anything, any sort of blessing out of Him. He's He's there exhibiting His wrath against you. So, so yeah. So we do talk about death, second death being a permanent separation from God. But it's got to be qualified. You can never get away from God. Ultimately, He's everywhere. But there's a sense in which uh, unsaved people now are separated from God, and there's a sense in which they'll be further separated. If we mean by separated, experiencing God's benefits and blessings. So right now, unsaved people are experiencing common grace, mm-hmm. things like that. But in hell, they won't. They'll have less. <laughs> very little. They will have very little. So that's what, you know, probably people, we should explain to people when we say hell is a separation from God. It's a further separation of our the blessings and benefits that we enjoy right now. Or unsafe people. Yeah, there's no common grace. Yeah, for sure. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and we talked about the fact that the fact that God is everywhere doesn't mean he manifests himself equally everywhere. There's, I mean, we pray our Father who art in heaven, which makes sense because there is a apparently some sort of grand manifestation of God in heaven uh, that we don't see here. But it doesn't mean that he's more up there than he is down here. 
it's just that he manifests, he makes himself uh, more visible, more grand, more glorious up there than he does here. Okay? Secondly, then, God's presence in a given place can increase when he draws near. Yeah, so false. And really, it's an extension of what we were just talking about. When he draws near, it's it's when when you see that language in scripture, it means to draw draw near with 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 blessing. Or it can contrarily mean to draw near with in judgment. Although it's more commonly drawing near with blessing, uh, but it doesn't mean he's more present. It's just that he's the manifestation of his blessing or his judgment is greater when he draws near. Okay? Define eternity for me. Never ending. Okay. Before there was, I am. Yeah. What did you say? What did you say? Before there was, I am. I can't remember how it was worded. There is uh, I was thinking that God's outside of our time, but He could place Himself in our time. Okay, yeah, that was that was he created that was, time. Yeah, that was like the one part of our definition. The other part was uh, that that for Him, past, present, and future yeah. are in, in, eternal present for God. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so I was telling Bill that's what that's what made me reformed <laughs> finally, when that finally got through my head. Hmm. Boy. I'm not sure if it's gotten through my head yet. But <laughs> Continuously blows your mind. It does, it? doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It does. So number four. This is my trick question for tonight. God knows what could happen. True. False. False. I say true because it, he knows what could happen in every situation, but he, we were just talking about that he has the best scenario that we have right now. He, he knows all ways that all different aspects could happen in other ways, but what he's decreed, what he's decided is the best happens. That's not what I thought. Right. Well, well, God knows what would happen if he, if things went differently than his decree. Right. And in that sense, you can say that God knows what would happen. Uh, what we do want to avoid is saying that he changes his mind. <laughs> well, that there's there's any contingency. This might happen, or that might happen. Right, right. We'll, we'll we'll find out. So so in that sense, we would not say. It. So I, if I were to say, I would say that God knows what will happen. God knows what has happened. God knows what could have happened. I probably wouldn't say God knows what could happen because it sounds a little bit too much like contingency but I'll admit this was a trick question that is tricky (laughs) so what answer knows whether things actual or possible and for most you know most people if you say if he knows what's actual and what's possible that sounds like could well the reason I I put a tricky question like that is because in this in this class, we're not actually assigning grades, so I'm just trying to review. And it, oh, I assigned myself a grade. It did that. Because so. <laughs> I didn't help the seminary students. 
Because <laughs> in the reading, it talked. I wonder if he's practicing. It talked about God always acts the same way towards moral evil and the same way towards moral good in his every reaction to men's response to him. If men or women alter the relations to him, he will always respond in a manner consistent to his immutable, holy character. And that's where I started getting lost. Okay. It's sort of like if I make the wrong, if I make a choice contrary to God's uh, revealed. Will, I have my book from last year with me. God knows. So all my notes are on the back of my test. Yeah, I think the point that that's he's true. trying to make there, and I don't know, it may even be in the context where he's talking about Jonah and the Ninevites in there. I think that's uh, the, yeah, it's one of them. Right. So, so what he's saying there is God is immutable. God doesn't change. And so then the question is, well, then why did he change his mind about destroying the Ninevites? And the answer is, he didn't change with respect no. to his character and his decree, but he had to change in his response to men when they repent. So, but he knew they were going true. True, true. That's 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 always the case. But but he was he stood against them while they were in sin and said he would judge them and he would have. But when they repent, he did, he no longer stands in judgment against them. He actually responds with blessing. That doesn't mean he changed. In fact, right. it's because he can't change with respect to his nature and character that he has to change in his response to people when they change. It's just when I'm reading yeah. this, I understand what he's saying, but to really under, it's like I'm not grasping it yeah. all the way. I think that's really what he was trying to say at that point. Because I was even reading, I go, listen, listen to this, Kim, and I read her a paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and... Uh, pick up here where we left off. I think we were in the middle of our discussion of the omniscience of God, that God knows all things, past, present, future, immediately, simultaneously, and eternally, whether those things are actual or possible. We went through the biblical proof, made some qualifications along along the way, and then I think we uh, ended up last time with this this discussion of objections. I think that's where we left off, page 29, number 4. Objections. So so who objects to omniscience? Well, Arminians do, seeking to preserve libertarian human freedom, uh, argue for a doctrine of simple foreknowledge, simple foreknowledge, that God knows all things by means of pre-temporal observation. That is, he looks down the corridors of time, observes what people are going to do, and then makes his decree accordingly. Okay? And so that's that's how they, they try to harmonize this material here. But I say this theory has no biblical basis, and, re- and actually rests on rather lexically suspect understanding of foreknowledge. And we talked about this last time and to, to, to a little bit of a degree, but when you see this word foreknowledge, the Greek word there, prognosko, which means to know beforehand, uh, one might look at this and say, aha, God knew beforehand what was going to happen. 
But actually, if you uh, look at the standard dictionary on this, in fact, I quote it here, BDAG is Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich, who together have given us what is sort of a standard Greek dictionary of, of, uh, of the Greek of this period. Uh, and you, you'll read here that when a personal object is in view, okay, it always has the idea of ordination and selection. Whereas if an object, whereas if a fact is in view, it means to know in advance. And, and uh, I think we mentioned last time that we have the same thing in English, right? If I were to say, I know George Bush, I'll, I'll put that one there because I've actually met him very briefly, but I don't really know him. But I, I could say I know him. And what do I mean by that? You recognize him if you see him. No, uh, a little, anyway. little more yeah. than that, because yeah. because I, I have have actually have some sort of an acquaintance with him. You know, mm-hmm. so I know him in in terms of an acquaintance. But I could also say something like, "I know that the stock market plunged today." Okay, well, this isn't an acquaintance I have. This is a fact that I know. Okay. And so we use the word know differently, right? Okay. And when you see this, this, this word foreknowledge and it has people in view, what it means is that God has established a special relationship with. Okay. He, he, he established an acquaintance, as it were. See the same thing again with, uh, I mentioned it last time, but uh, Adam knew Eve. Well, what does that mean? Does it, does it mean that uh, he discovered her for the first time? You know. Well, it means that he established a special relationship with her, a sexual relationship. Um, and, and so we, we all we use this word no in multiple ways. And and it's it's quite easily uh, established in Greek that when you see this word foreknowledge of persons, it means to establish a special relationship with, or we might use the word to elect or foreordain or, or, or something of that nature. And so that the word foreknowledge does not mean looking down the corridors of time and seeing whether or not you get saved or not. That's not what foreknowing a person means. Okay. So that doesn't that doesn't work. God has has omniscience in that he doesn't learn anything at all. He knows everything from the standpoint of the beginning, um, and uh, without having to observe it or to look down the corridors of time to, to find out what's going to happen. The open theist takes this a step further. We talked about this last time as well, or sometimes process theism, it's sometimes called. Uh, again, they're trying to preserve human freedom. They argue that God neither determines or even knows the future, so God can't even look down the corridors of time and find out what's going to happen. In, in some sense, uh, what uh, what is happening in our universe is a surprise to God. Now, because he knows everything that can presently be known, according to the open theist, so he knows everything that is that is knowable, that has happened or is happening, uh, he can have make some pretty good educated guesses about what's going to happen, but he can never be absolutely certain because man has a free will. So do these guys read the Bible at all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's 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 a tension, is it? But 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 here, but the the reason is because they so privileged human human freedom 
that they'd, they'd rather take away gods than take away ours, right? Uh, so they he, they want to, for mankind to have absolute freedom, and they'll stop at nothing to give it to like Genesis 3. Like yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> okay. Letter C here. Another objection here is that sometimes we find in Scripture that there is divine ignorance. So Genesis 3, God calls out to Adam, where are you? Does the same thing next chapter when when he, he goes to Cain and said, you know, where's your brother? Uh, chapter 11, God came down to see what was going on at the Tower of Babel. And uh, Genesis 18 uh, does the same thing. He went goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah to find out what's going on there. Chapter 22, after Abraham... Uh, expresses willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac. God answers, now I know that you fear God. Of course, we're, we're sort of reading implications in all these statements. God went down to see. That implies he doesn't know. God asks a question, you know, where are you? Implies he doesn't know. Of course, that's not stated anywhere. Okay. In fact, in fact, I, I think I like the, the one in, in, in Genesis chapter four, where he asks Cain, "Where's your brother? What happened to your brother?" What does Cain say? I oh, damn, I my brother's keeper. And the next statement, God implies that he knows where Abel is because his blood is crying out from the ground. So God knows exactly where Abel is and knows exactly what happened to him. So. Uh, the fact that he asked where Abel was was not because he was ignorant of where Abel was. Rather, he's just using some sort of a, a device here uh, to try and get Cain to see the error of his ways and repent. But uh, it doesn't work out that way. Okay? And so we have all of these <clears throat> statements of apparent ignorance here. But I say here, these texts never clearly specify that God didn't know. What what he was the, the the answer to the question he was asking it has to be inferred from incomplete data. In each case, an alternative arises. Genesis three nine. God's not unaware of Adam's present. Where are you? In fact, an open theist would say that God would have to know where Adam was. God knows everything that can be presently known. He would know where Adam is. Instead, this is a pedagogical technique designed to draw out a confession. From Adam and Eve, and ultimately it works. They they, they do confess their sin. So I, so I understand it. They become believers. Genesis 11, Genesis 18, God comes down to see Babel. God comes down to see Sodom and Gomorrah and to see how bad things have become. Again, it's sort of, there's perhaps a, an implication that we might draw that he doesn't know what's going on, but it never says that. And I would argue that that's not what's happening. Instead, God is coming down in judgment, collecting evidence to that end, or perhaps he's using some sort of anthropomorphic language for the understanding of his readers. Uh, that is, he's, he's con condescending to sort of make himself knowable uh, 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 for, for those of us who are reading this story. But there's no sense in which we should look at this and say, God didn't know in heaven what was going on at the Tower of Babel or what was going on at Sodom and Gomorrah. 
I also say Genesis 22 and Deuteronomy 13, where God comes down to see uh, how people would respond and to discover uh, whether they're faithful, whether they uh, whether they truly have faith in God, Abraham first, and the people of Israel second. Nowhere in these passages do we find a statement that God was ignorant of this fact, only that by test he sex, they successfully demonstrated their faith or their lack of faith. This demonstration then becomes the basis for God's response. But again, we don't find any anywhere stated here that God didn't know if Abraham was had had real faith or not. Of course, he knows that. And then also we have statements here that uh, suggest that God for, forgets or remembers. Uh, this does not mean that uh, he that information leaves his mind. I mean, I, I know sometimes we talk about the idea of forgiveness as as you know, forgiving and forgetting. Um, and we actually find statements here that God forgets our sins or doesn't hold sins against us any longer. But God cannot, by, by his very nature, cannot forget anything. Uh, it's, it's not as though God can uh, can just, you know, you know, can't remember what, whether you sinned or not. Just, it's a blank in my mind. Of course he remembers it. But he no longer holds it against you. That's that's the implication of him forgetting. Uh, and then the same thing with remembering. Okay, It's not as though you know, God lost David in the wilderness and forgot he was out there. And then, oh, he remembered. Oh, yeah, that's right, David's out there. That's not the point. But the remembering here is a remembering in, in, in terms of blessing. He remembered David and visited him with kindness. Uh, so again, none of these none of these uh, instances suggest that God actually didn't know something or forgot something uh, uh, or or something of that nature. Uh, all of them, I think, in the end, uh, have other and better explanations. Uh, thoughts on on any of these things? Okay. Practical value here, I sometimes do this here. God's aware of all of our needs, even before we are. And the disasters and inequities of life are within God's knowledge and control. It's, it's you know, the fact that God knows. It's a very profound theological statement. It's a source of great comfort in, in, in any kind of circumstance of life. God knows. And uh, it's a great, great thought. Okay, but wouldn't you say? Couldn't you also say God is aware of our needs, even if we? I mean, we may never know. Yeah. I mean, right. You know, He's doing what's good, but it yeah. might not seem good to me, or I might not be aware of why. Maybe ever. Right. Yeah. And in fact, and I think that's that's why David says at the end of Psalm fifty-one, "Search me and know my thoughts; try me and know my heart; see if there's any wickedness in me." The implication here is you know, he's just made a uh, one of the grandest uh, mea culpas in all of in all of the Bible. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this. I I won't do it again. But then he sort of ends it by saying, you know, I don't even know my own heart, though. I I I really want to think that I am absolutely. Sorrowful, and I'm never going to turn back to this kind of a sin again. But you know, I'm, I'm self-deceived. I I don't know my own heart, but you do. 
God knows my heart, and and that's that's so that's the, I think you're bearing out the point you just made here. God knows things that we don't know, may never know, that we need. I was thinking about that word control. Does that should that be used here in the sense of we're talking about omniscience? Acquisitive life within God's knowledge and control. Ah. So does control, should we be talking about control at this point? <clears throat> Not necessarily. Or Well, again, it's it's one of those things where if they aren't in his control, he can't know it. Well, see, that's the point. We, we have a mistake. I mean, right. we, we, say, we say in a Calvinistic perspective that God knows because he's ordained everything. That's the only way he can know, right? That's the only way he really can right. know. The idea that God can know and not determine, that's what Arminians say. Right. God has knowledge of everything, but he hasn't determined. Well, that's sort of an impossibility, we think, right? right. So what you say, that's what I meant. When you say control, for you, that just naturally follows. Sure. But what's funny is, you know, I think some Arminians might read and say, all things within God's knowledge and control, and they can't. Even, they might say it, but they can't even really. It's really totally illogical for them to say. Yeah. If you have libert- if you have human freedom, as you said, libertarian human freedom, God can't be in control with mm-hmm. the libertarian human freedom, can he? he? Can't really control things. He, even though our Arminian friends would say, "Yeah, God's in control, and He's running things, and I can trust God; He's in control." It's really an impossibility, for, isn't it, for God to be in control if there's mm-hmm. libertarian human freedom? Yes. Yep. So yeah, I'll keep, I'll keep my control in there. <laughs> but again, but again, it's a, and it's a good point that that, that Bill draws out. Well, if I made it, it had to be a good point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all of these attributes connect with each other. They all they all they all inform each other. So. It's almost impossible to talk about any one attribute without simultaneously bringing to bear some of the others. Uh, these these attributes don't stand alone. Next step here in epistemology here, not only does he know everything, but he's also all-wise, sometimes called the omnisapience of God. So what do we mean by this? That God applies all of his knowledge in such a way that the best means are employed to achieve the highest ends in order to glorify him the most. That is, God is all-wise. Now, sometimes there's those who would object to this because uh, we, I mean, uh, this basically is saying that we live in the best possible world. This is... uh, of a classical argument that was made uh, by Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, way back in the in the uh, middle Middle Ages, that we live in the best possible world. Okay? That that the things that are happening to us collectively and that ha- happening in around the world together are the very best possible things that could happen to bring bring God the greatest possible glory. Okay. That's that's really what we're saying here, and you know, let's let's put some evidence out here, uh, and before we raise some objections, which I'm sure there there are some to raise, God's described as the only wise God. Again, wisdom, and your, your really short definition of wisdom is applied knowledge. Okay, so 
Uh, so if you have wisdom, that means you have take the knowledge that you have and apply it well. God being all knowledgeable is able to have all wisdom. Since he knows all things, then he can, uh, in, in a way no one else can, apply all of that knowledge collectively to achieve the greatest possible ends, which means he is all wise, or the only wise God. We also find this statement in Romans 11, oh, how, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And so his wisdom is unsearchable. It's manifested in creation, Psalm 104. How many are your works in wisdom? You made them all. And if you're familiar with Psalm 104, it's a, it's the, uh, it's the creation psalm. It's, it's the, it's basically Genesis 1 in a poem. And it's not really designed to explain that God did all, made everything, but rather how God made everything. Okay? And, 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 and he talks about all the intricacies of how, how the animals work together with people so that, uh, so that the animals can get their food from God and the people can get their food from God and they don't, and they don't clash because people are getting their food during the day the animals the wild animals are getting their food at night and, and you know the, the fish are in the sea they can get their food while we're up on on perched on top of the water with a fishing pole and we're able to get our food from god it's it's just how, how it all works together in, in such a in a with such grand intricacy and that's the, the theme of Psalm 104, how wise you are. In wisdom, you made everything. Everything fits together in the most perfect of possible ways. So it's seen in creation. It's seen in providence. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And that's a lot of things, right? All things work together. For the greatest possible ends. And so it incorporates all of his knowledge uh, and all of his, effectively, all of his um, omnipotence come to bear on, 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 on the data, the, the material that is in his creation, so that we who love God uh, are receiving good from God's hand, ultimately. Wisdom is also seen in redemption. Ephesians 3, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. The many-faceted wisdom of God could be made known. Uh, and if we think of Romans 9 to 11 where uh, Paul's talking about how Israel was <coughs> chosen by God, how they set, that he set them aside and so that the fullness of the Gentiles could come in, and then Israel became jealous of the Gentiles, and so they sort of, you know, want back in themselves, and, and at the end, all Israel will be saved, and oh, how wise this was, how how manifold are the, the wise works of God that he can pull everything together like this. It seems like, you know, it's like a, it's not like the A-team where all, all things sort of just come together here. It's, it's, it's planned from the beginning uh, to come together in, a, in just a, in a fabulous way. So that's the wisdom of God, okay? Make some qualifications here. The omnisapience of God is directly tied to his omniscience, only an infinitely knowledgeable God can possibly know all of the factors that comprehensively determine the best possible course 
of action. Then another B, and this is perhaps where we could sort of founder a little bit here. By arguing for divine omnisapience, we are arguing that ours is the best of all possible worlds. And the thing that we might balk at when we read that is that can't we certainly the world can be better than this, right? Certainly there could have been a better world than this. We live in a rather rather terrible world right now. A lot of bad things happening in our world. So how can we talk about this being the best possible world? Well, it's to be sure not the world with the least possible evil. But the passages above suggest that the world in which we live best forwards the whole purpose of God and his interests for the universe. We'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about the decree of God and the problem of evil, but we're bringing it up here because even evil, we are suggesting here, is part of the manifold wisdom of God. It's not as though something just sort of got loose in God's universe and he couldn't control it. No, this is something that it, uh, that that God had... I mean, there was a controlled release of sin into the universe. He could stop it at any time if he wanted to, right? He's an omnipotent God. He could stop evil just like that. But he doesn't. So then we ask, why not? Why is it that he allows evil to continue? And we get bits and pieces of the answer as we work our way through Scripture, but never a... a, a a nice clear answer to that. And Romans 9, for instance, talks about how God created vessels of wrath and God created vessels of mercy. Why did he do this? You'd think that he would just make vessels of mercy. But no, he made vessels of wrath. Why? To make his power and wrath known. Okay, so in order for us to be able to see his power, his holiness, his, his 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 justice at work, there had to be these vessels of, of 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 destruction so that we could know that side of God. And of course, we have vessels of mercy, whereby we get to see God's mercy, his grace, his, his love that's extended. And so by introducing both of these we know God better and that brings more glory to God even though it involves the intrusion, the intrusion of evil in the world. So, again, uh, we have a thousand what-ifs that we could ask. Well, why does God allow that evil or this evil or that? And we can't answer every one. We don't know the mind of God. Except to know that what he is doing is the best possible combination of events uh, and facts in order to bring him the greatest possible glory. That's what we mean by God being all wise. Any thoughts on that? Regardless of what evil it is, it's still evil. If you just kind of break it down to evil and good, you've got, you know, you can see his grace, like you were saying. It doesn't matter what the evil is, it's just, it's all under the same initial heading. Right. Yeah, we're going to have to answer the question, and we will later on here, is how can this be? If God is a good and holy God, how can how can He tolerate? Well, how would you know He was a good and holy God if you didn't know the alternative? Excellent, excellent <laughs> response. Yes, yeah. uh, but uh, uh, but we we but it does it does sort of ask the question. Well, so how is God holy if He decrees evil in His universe? 
And so we'll have to answer that question coming up. But for now, all we're trying to establish here is that evil is not just sort of an aberration, something that was unintended. This is something that God made a controlled... It's it's a design here. He facilitated evil in his universe for the purpose of the best possible ends. Okay. That makes sense? Also in, then, the epistemological realm is the incomprehensibility of God. What we mean by this is that God cannot be completely known by a finite mind. We have texts that say as much, Psalm 139.6, God's knowledge is too wonderful for me, it's too lofty for me to attain. Job 11, can you fathom the mysteries of God? No. Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? No. They are higher than the heavens, what can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the high heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways so much higher and your, than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then again, this statement, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable, beyond tracing out all of these, speak to the incomprehensibility of God. He cannot be fully known. And that word fully is an important word here. It does not mean that God is unknowable, that he can't not, cannot be known at all. We cannot have a relationship with him. We can, but we can never know him fully. There will always be more to learn about him if we ever could comprehend God, that is, know him fully, then the mystery would be gone. He would cease to be God to us. We would be just like him. And so the, uh, the, the, that's, that's part of that creator-creature distinction that can, that, can, that can never be breached. There are, there are certain things that God will always know and, and that we won't. There are certain things about God that we can never know. Uh, or else he wouldn't be, else he, he wouldn't be God any longer. Okay. So this makes worship possible. And we sometimes say that when we get to heaven, we're going to know everything. Well, maybe you don't, but it's been said, right? You know, when we get to heaven, we'll know. We'll understand when we get to heaven. Well, you, 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 you might, you, you might not. There are certain things you won't understand when you get to heaven because if you knew, understood to the same degree that God did, then you'd be God. Someone said that to me last week, and I said exactly what you right. just said to hmm. me. They sort of looked at me. Yeah, that never occurred. Undoubtedly, we'll know more when we get to heaven, and we'll con- increase our knowledge for all eternity, but we'll never catch God. You know, we'll, we'll never, we'll never know, we'll never know all there is to know about God. Okay. Okay, so that's uh, the realm. We went through the realm of his relationship to space and time, to his relationship with knowledge. Now, with respect to his power, we find that God is independent, infinite, and immutable. That is, he is omnipotent. Okay? This brings us into the ethical realm. He can do whatever he wants. So, by omnipotence is meant that by his exhaustless power, 
God can do all things, and here's the qualification already, consistent with his character and will. We've already sort of introduced this earlier. God cannot create a rock that he cannot lift. He can't pit the attributes of God against one another in this way. And why can he not build a rock that is too large for him to lift? It's outside of his character and nature. He would never want to build such a rock. And so you, you can't create paradoxes here and force God to, uh, to, to live within the paradox. We have proof of this as well. Job 42, you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Our God is in heaven, Psalm 115.3. He does whatever pleases him. He doesn't do what displeases him. He does whatever he wants. Jeremiah 32, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And God replies, Yet I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? No. The attribute is manifested over all creation. God does whatever he pleases in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in all their depths. He has omnipotence in the realm of men and angels. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven, the angelic realm, and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He he cannot be stopped. It's again his sovereignty at play. No, No force can stand against him and tell him what he can or cannot do. He has this omnipotent power over Satan himself. We see that, of course, in the story of Job. Job has to come into this court of heaven and beg God to, in order to do anything. Yeah. Can I can I attack Job? Okay, you can do X, Y. Okay, but not Z. Okay, and so uh, so Satan goes and does it, comes back and says it's not enough. Can I can I do Z now? Okay, you can go ahead and do Z too, but just don't just don't take his life. That's the one thing that's left. Uh, but he has to ask at every point. Can I please God? Can I can I do this in order to get permission? Same thing happens in Revelation twenty. So Satan must ask God for permission to do things, and will ultimately be cast by God into hell, an ultimate manifestation of God's power over him. He even has power over sin and depravity. With God, all things are possible. The context, of course, is very important to us. This is a reference to to faith, right? Here, you know, how is can a can a rich man get into heaven? Can a poor man get into heaven? Can brilliant people get into heaven? Well, it's 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 uh, it's harder to get a, a camel through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so the question is, well, then then who can get saved? And God says, well, you know, with God, anything's possible. With God, a camel can get through the eye of a needle, effectively, because God can overcome the power of depravity, uh, which which seems like the, the one thing that cannot be controlled, God can control it. God can shut off depravity if he wants insert a new nature in someone so that they will uh, have faith unto salvation and then he also has power over death 
Uh, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us too. What a grand promise that is, right? Uh, that death uh, has no power uh, that God cannot that God cannot address. Okay. Some qualifications here. Got a number of them here. God can do all that He wills, but He will not do all that He can. In short, He has absolute power over His own power. So, for instance, he can't do logically absurd things like making a shorter than a straight line between two points. He can't make A be not A to create a a rock too large for him to lift. Not because God is somehow bound by natural laws external to himself, but because the natural laws that make these things impossible are an extension of his own nature and character, which he cannot deny. He, He can only do things consistent with his nature, character, and will. So he can't do nonsensical things. He can't do immoral things. God cannot lie. It says on two occasions, at least in Scripture, he can't do immoral things. Why? Because it's a violation of his nature. And, of course, he can't act contrarily to his own will. So we say here that in, in, in Hebrews 2.17 that he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Well, Why? Was something forcing his hand? Was something uh, uh, obliging God to, to, to take on humanity in order to be their high priest? Well, well, no, it's not something outside of God that is forcing him, but this is God's plan. And so once God decreed that man would be saved, this was the only way. And for that reason, because of the decree of God... He had to be made like his brother in every way. This is not an absolute necessity, but actually sometimes, in fact, there's a name given to it, the hypothetical consequent necessity view. (laughs) Basically what it means that once God decided to do it a certain way, this was the only way it could be done. Okay, So it's not an absolutely necessary thing for God to do. It's something that consequent to his determination to save people this was the only way that it could be done. Okay? Number two, another qualification here. God's omnipotence, like all of his attributes, cannot be ceded in any sense to his creatures. Now, some suggest that this is the case. Arminians, open theists, They suggest that God voluntarily gives up his sovereignty and hands it over to humans so that they can have control over their own fates. And so God is not regarded as omnipotent, but, and this is a term that uh, is used by the open theist here, as omnicompetent. That is, he can manage and cope with all of the events that are unfolding in the in the in the universe, but he doesn't actually control them. Okay. I actually saw a video of a, I think his name Plessis. I don't remember his first name. But anyway, he was telling everybody that God was asking his advice, <laughs> and he changed God's mind. Oh wow! <laughs> oh. That's the guy that had the plane, bought the. Yeah, oh, Jesse, oh, you know, oh, that know, guy. Jesse, who bought the, that's who right. wanted money for that new plane, you remember? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the video. You remember? Uh, he's a uh, you know health health and wellness. Right, right, right. Jesse, yeah, he gave God advice and God changed his mind. Yeah, yeah. that doesn't happen. <laughs> right, but this uh, but this is the view that uh, not your world, but <laughs> so 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 omnicompetence means that God is able to herd cats, if I can put it that way. Right, He's able to bring everything together to to come to the conclusion that He wants, but He doesn't know exactly how it's going to happen. But that's that's silly. God cannot act contrarily to his own will. So, uh, we find this in Scripture here. In, in terms of election, God is not omnicompetent, but omnipotent. God has the power, as the pat potter does, to have to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. What if God choosing to to show his wrath and here it is, make his power known bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? God decides. It's not as though this is something that he cedes to someone else. That You get to decide whether you're going to embrace God or not and I'll just sort of pick up the pieces wherever they fall. No, God is the one who decides which ones are made for noble use and which ones are made for common use. Same thing is true with regeneration. To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. These children are born not of natural descent or of human decision or of a husband's will. They're born of God. Okay, So, so how, who, who is regenerated? Who is given new birth? Well, just like human birth, I didn't decide to be born. It wasn't that wasn't a decision? Nobody already asked me whether I wanted to be born or not. It just happened. You know, I was born. Uh, but so why why are certain people born again, regenerated, given new life? Well, because God gives them new life. They're born of God. He's the decision maker here. Faith is under the guiding hand of an omnipotent God. The disciples asked, who then can be saved? God looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but God, with God all things are possible. God makes faith possible or he leaves it in the state of impossibility that it is uh, without any assistance from him. Okay? So all of these things come together to say that God does not cede his omnipotence to anyone else, doesn't give his sovereignty up. Uh, so that people can have freedom. You know, God has absolute omnipotence. And practically, that means that which is impossible for us is possible with God. And that exceeds just the question of our salvation, but all things. You know. And God, God can make it happen. And the events within our lives are not only within the scope of knowledge and wisdom, but also God has infinite power to effect his ends. I remember I was... When I was in uh, seminary, my was it my first or second year? I guess my first year. I was taking systematic one, and my uh, that was my second year. My wife, my uh, we had a, we had a baby born, and uh, John was uh, John was born uh, about eleven weeks early. 
three pounds. It was it was a difficult time. And then while we're still in the hospital, uh, they discover cancer in my in my wife's thyroid. I mean, it was just like my whole world got blown up. Here I am in seminary, uh, trying to you know trying to make ends meet, and it was just it was it was a very trying trying time. Just end of story. Everybody's everybody's okay, but uh, <laughs> but let's keep on with the story. Uh, just, but at the time, I was I was like, and I remember I was in the hospital, and I, I, had, a, I had a systematic theology test. I'm here studying and studying and studying uh, while while uh, while going through all of this, and and I remember I had written down somehow in the margin of my notes that you know, uh, God is God is omniscient. He knows what's best for me. God is love. He wants what's best for me. And then God is omnipotent. He can accomplish what's best for me. Somehow, I, I don't even remember writing it down. I didn't. But I, but I did. And I, I remember it was just sort of an overwhelming observation there from my theology notes that, in fact, this is, this is, this is unfolding the way God intends. And uh, so it was, it was a comforting thought. See, that's what you can do at night when you're, when you're when you have nothing to do. Read your systematic theology notes. It notes it's a, it can be useful, believe it or not. There's practical value here. Okay, thoughts then on the omnipotence of God. Okay, well let's turn the corner here, and we are well behind, so we need to we need to make every minute count here. So, the moral attributes of God moral attributes of God. And we suggested that, again, there's not really a strict line of demarcation between natural and moral attributes. Uh, His natural attributes are morally requisite. Nonetheless, there are certain attributes that fall here within the the realm of ethics, goodness here. Um, So it's, it's possible to speak of a class of relational attributes, moral attributes, that together with certain functions are analogically reflected in persons in God's image. So we can, to some degree, reflect as analogs of God, not as equals of God, but as analogs of God, certain of these attributes in a finite sense. That's why sometimes we talk about the communicable these as the communicable attributes of God. These are the ones that we can share to some degree, not in, in not in their qualitative fullness uh, but they're, they're things that we are commanded to share with God so that's that's what we're talking about here we're going to start here with his moral character um, his essence God is holy God is holy which we find here as his self-affirming purity that renders him separate from sin and necessarily devoted seeking his own honor. This term here, holiness, comes from rather simple Greek and Hebrew terms, kadash and hagios, respectively, that means means separate or apart uh, in their etymological sense. The term simply means set aside from ordinary usage and can be applied to rather strange things if we're thinking about holiness as moral purity, like they can be applied to persons, but also to physical objects, personal property, their bowls and, and, and utensils in the temple that were holy, 
in that they were set aside from common use. The, and and uh, the term frequently carries no moral connotations at all. It's just set aside. You know, sometimes you, I guess we don't don't do it so much anymore. But uh, uh, but you you've got in, in your cupboard, you've got uh, your your everyday dishes and your special china. Okay, those are your holy dishes, right? Those are set aside for special use. Uh, so so it could, it, obviously that doesn't have a moral connotation, but it could be used that way. Actually, in, in a rather uh, rather an odd thing, uh, the word uh, kadash especially can have an impure implication. Uh, for instance, the the word um, the word for a uh, for a a prostitute is a kedashah. Okay, it's someone who is set aside from ordinary life. Okay, and this is in a negative sense. Okay. Uh, so this this term simply means to be set aside, but from this very most primitive idea, transition is made to the idea of separation from uncleanness. So we, when we think of holiness, we generally think of this this understanding here uh, that we are separate from sin, okay, or moral purity. So this is the most common understanding of the term, uh, and that's what we're getting at here. Uh, something of that more primitive meaning of apartness persists in this descriptor as applied to God. God's holiness refers not only to his apartness from what is unclean, which is his ethical or moral purity, but also from his apartness from all that is finite and created, which we sometimes refer to as his majestic transcendence. So uh, when, uh, when Isaiah, for instance, Gets in, goes into the throne room of God, and the angels are crying out, "Holy, holy, holy!" They probably aren't intending by that morally pure, morally pure, morally pure, but majestically transcendent, uh, and that's probably the the idea that's wrapped up in it. Again, this idea of apartness. So he's set apart from sin. But he's set apart from everything that is finite and created as well. And so both of those ideas are wrapped up in this idea of God being holy. He's separate from sin and separate from his creation. Okay, so uh, let's look at some of the texts here. We've already referenced a couple of these, right? First, holiness as majestic transcendence. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glory, working wonders. So he's different from and better than the other gods. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. There's the summary statement. He's holy. That's what it means for God to be holy. There's Isaiah six, which we just referenced here. Okay, so those are uh, so that's the the idea of God as majestically transcendent. And in that sense, we're probably thinking more in terms of one of the attributes of God's greatness. Okay, uh, rather than the attribute of God's goodness. So that, this is why I, I'm, we're going to talk about this as sort of the bridge attribute. Uh, so it it it, it carries. Elements from both sides of the uh, of, of this uh, you know chart that we've made here of the attributes of God. So he's majestically transcendent, but he's also ethically pure. 
And that's reflected in these texts as well. Do not defile yourselves. Do not make yourself unclean. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Implying here, undefiled and clean. You must distinguish between what is clean and unclean. So God is holy in terms of his ethical purity. Isaiah 5, uh, the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Okay, so again, moral. Uh, Acts 3.14, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. Again, a reflection of the fact that God was Jesus Christ was sinless. And yet instead, uh, they, they asked that he be put to death and the murderer released Barabbas. Okay. Got a question here. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about it here. We might run out of time, but let's do it. Um, is there any attribute that can be called a governing attribute or a primary attribute of God? Uh, it's, this is always a question that's Bill mentioned a couple of weeks ago here. There was a question that always popped up in our doctrinal defenses when we were having that at the seminary. Uh, is there a, is there an attribute that sort of governs them all? You know, one ring to rule them all. Kind of. Is there is there an attribute that sort of rises to the top? And uh, uh, and uh, I've got a sort of a yes no answer to that. Let's see if we can't uh, tease out some of these implications. Let's first of all say what cannot be said about holiness relative to the other attributes. One, A. It's inappropriate to think of holiness as temporally primary. It's not as though God was holy first and then he added the attributes afterwards. That's not the case. God is immutably all that his attributes are. So it's not as though one is 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 primary in terms of time. It's also inappropriate to think of holiness as quantitatively primary, that God is more holy than he is true or loving, etc. God possesses all of his attributes in infinite supply, so we can't say that God is more holy than he is loving. C, it's also inappropriate to think of holiness as a, as a more necessary attribute, where the others are voluntary. He must be holy, but he may be loving. Uh, all of God's attributes are necessary in God, and to diminish any of them would to make him less than God. So it's not as though one is more important than the others, uh, more necessary or primary. And then finally, it's inappropriate to set God's individual attributes against one another as contradictions. So we can't pit the attributes again. We already said we couldn't pit his omnipotence against itself by, uh, you know, uh, suggesting that there be a rock that he cannot lift. You, you can't pit God's attributes against each other. They harmonize. Okay. And so we can't suggest that, you know, God would like to be loving, but his holiness sort of prevents him from being loving. Okay. Uh, you know, God's attributes cannot be pitted against each other in that way. So that that's what we cannot say about holiness in terms of a governing attribute. Nonetheless, there does seem to be something of a priority placed on holiness within the scriptures that I think we can explore and, and say some po- positive things about. Okay, And that's what I do in number two here.
A. The attribute of holiness is unique in that it functions both as a summary attribute, his majestic transcendence, and as a moral attribute, his ethical purity. And there's no other attribute like that. So this is this is an attribute that's got its feet in both sides of our of our of our diagram here. Uh, it, it seems to it seems to be a, a unique attribute in that way. Um, uh, several systematic theologians. Uh, Hodge, Gill, Burkhoff, uh regard holiness as a singularly summary attribute, the sum of God's perfections. This attribute is unique in that sense. We also find that the biblical writers seem to favor holiness above other attributes in descriptions and designations of God. He's described as the Holy One 56 times, so it seems to put some real priority on that. The third person of the Trinity accepts the designation the Holy Spirit. Well, he could have chosen any of the attributes he wanted to, and yet it's the Holy. It's not the loving spirit or the merciful spirit. Uh, he's the Holy Spirit. That's that's the name he generally is, is, is given. He's the thrice holy God. You know, Isaiah doesn't come into the throne room of God and hear omnipotence, omnipotence, omnipotence. You know, he hears holy, holy, holy. So... Uh, so it does seem like there's some significance there. And God swears by his holiness. When he could swear by nothing greater, he swears by his holiness. So there does seem to be some sort of priority placed on the holiness of God here. Again, I'm not saying much yet, except to say that it's sort of set apart as, as perhaps, uh, you know, in some, in some way. Among the moral attributes, holiness, secondly supplies the ethical standard from which the attributes of God's goodness flow, both defining what is good and governing the manifestation of that goodness. So the holiness of God is the ground of all moral obligation. Because God is holy, God is good. We can't reverse that. We can't say, because God is good, he's also holy. Now, the, 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 there, there seems to be a logical priority of holiness to the rest of the moral attributes of God. Letter D here. All expressions of divine goodness require the satisfaction of God's holy standards in order to move forward. So, in other words, in, in order for God, for instance, to love people into heaven... The demands of his holiness must be satisfied before that love can be extended, right? Okay, God, God can't just, um, uh, by, by, by virtue of his great love, bring people into heaven. How do we know that? Because Jesus died on the cross. Okay, Jesus died on the cross. Why? Because in order to express love of this nature... He had to satisfy first the holy demands of a righteous God in order to make that that expression of love possible. So holiness needs to be satisfied. The holy holiness of God needs to be satisfied before love can flow. If I can put it that way. And then letter E, while both the holiness and love of God may rightly be regarded as self-affirming qualities that is, attributes that God has in himself, the attribute of love is intrinsically a self-communicating quality. Okay, what do I mean by that? 
you, you, you can't really know love except by experience. As God, God must be perfectly loving in himself, but he is not under obligation to communicate these qualities to his creatures. This is what we talk, we're going to talk about here with the love of God here. God's love in say, in himself, is absolutely infinite and necessary. God's expression of love towards others is voluntary in nature and doesn't have to be infinite in its expression. Okay, this is important for us to recognize here. It's not as though God has to elect everyone or has to atone for everyone's sin or have to, has to extend salvation to everyone. That's, that's not something he must do. He's in control of, over his own love and and uh, and so uh, his 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 love ab extra as it's sometimes called towards those who are without is not an absolute is not absolutely infinite in its expression but holiness is holiness is both in say and ab extra absolute he is always holy in himself he is always holy in in his expressions in what he does So if God does not savingly communicate his holiness, love, mercy, and grace to his creatures, neither his holiness nor his love in himself is rightly challenged. However, if he looks with favor upon a creature to whom he has come out, not communicated his holiness, love, mercy, and grace, then both his holiness and his love in himself are subject to challenge. So when God loves believers, he loves himself in them substitution, right? And for God to otherwise love a creature, someone who ha- he, for whom he has not substituted, for him that would be wrong. It would be not holy, and thus deny his own holiness and perfect love. Okay, so in this sense, God's holiness in some sense has, has a priority of a sort over the rest of his moral attributes. So, my conclusion, how do I, how do I want to word this? While it's improper to speak of any of God's attributes as being more primary, more necessary, more abundant, the nature of holiness as a summary attribute with an absolute intrinsic ethical standard renders it a genuinely governing attribute. So that's the word I like to use, a governing attribute in the outworking of the divine perfections. I've got some texts here that sort of imply that. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all that who do wrong. You destroy all those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. Why? Because he's holy. And so he hates. He also loves. But because of his holiness, he also hates and withholds love. Same with Psalm 11. The Lord examines the righteous, but... The wicked and those who love violence, his soul loathes. Actually, it's, I think King James has. On the uh, on the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. Scorching wind will be their lot, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and only upright men will see his face. Okay. So, I don't know if that, that makes sense to you here, but... Uh, 
I, I like to think of holiness as having in some sense a governing quality to it relative to the rest of his moral attributes. And I am, again, I'm only speaking of his moral attributes. It's not so that his holiness governs the expression of his omnipresence or something. Uh, we're only talking here relative to his, his moral attributes. But it does seem like there's a standard involved in holiness that makes it a little bit different from the rest of the attributes. Thoughts on that? Used to be a big question in in uh, when, it, when it was the fundamentalists against the new evangelicals. So the, uh, the fundamentalists said the holiness of God was more important, and the new evangelicals said the love of God was more important. So that's where sort of this question started to emerge, uh, and probably there was overstatement on on both sides here. But there does seem to be a sense in which the holiness of God governs the expression of His love in ways that it can't be said oppositely, that the love of God determined what his holiness is. That, I don't know if that, that, that follows. Okay? So next time we'll, we'll look at some of the more practical manifestations of his holiness, justice, righteousness, goodness, and such. Um, and so, so that's where we'll pick up next time.